Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. And I'm Navjot Lada. This week we're at the Overdiagnosis Conference in Quebec, Canada. Preventing Overdiagnosis is a forum to discuss the harms associated with using uncertain methods to look for disease in apparently healthy people. And it's part of the BMJ's Too Much Medicine campaign. As you'll have heard earlier, the literature on overdiagnosis has been mostly published since around 2013, partly because of the BMJ, but in large part because of the work of our next guest in her journal, JAMA Internal Medicine and its Less Is More series. Um, Rita Reitberg is a professor of clinical medicine and a working cardiologist at UCSF. Uh, Rita, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, Rita, in an earlier interview, um, we spoke to Stacey Carter about um, moral shocks, um, which is the point where in a social movement, something happens that changes your perspective and makes you look back on what you've known in a new light. Um, And she talked about this in the context of overdiagnosis and coming to the realisation that something wasn't right and feeling compelled to do something about it. Um, And we just wanted to ask you to start with, did you have one of those moments that led you to your work on overdiagnosis and the less is more campaign? I think I've had a a lot of those moments. Um, The earliest one that I remember was when I was in medical school and I was at the University of Pennsylvania and John, I was actually at that time planning to be a family physician and the University of Pennsylvania didn't actually have a division, a department of family practice at that time. And I was working in general internal medicine, and the chief of general internal medicine was John Eisenberg, who was very interested in sort of the bigger picture of healthcare in the US, and was actually the one who at that time was coming out with diagnosis-related groups, which was kind of the US way to do bundles and try to get some handle on inpatient hospitals. But he was also doing a project to try to get the house staff to reduce their test ordering because we by rote and to, to have you know, daily chemistries on everyone who's inpatient and you know admission chest x-rays, admission ECGs. I mean, this was 35 years ago. It's still happening, I'm sorry to say, maybe to a lesser extent. But he was trying to get the house tip to stop ordering the daily chemistries by just sending them notes every day and saying, well, you know, why did you order, very nicely, why did you order this test? What did you learn from it? How did it help patient management? You know, did it lead to better outcomes? And the kind of questions I think we should be asking about all the tests we order, but wasn't anything that occurred to me because if I saw the house staff ordering it, I was going to do it too. And so when, the, unfortunately, his test, was, his experiment had no effect on house staff ordering, but it did have a big effect on me because it was, as you said, a moral shock that I thought, wow, I should be thinking about what tests I order. I shouldn't assume just because someone else is doing it that this is a good thing for patients, which had been certainly my assumption. And I think patients assume that too. But it's just not possible, and and there are a lot of things we do. And certainly there are a lot of things we do that are on the side of just ordering too much tests. And like we were talking about, I think a lot of it is the culture, and the culture is to order a lot of tests. as as a trainee especially, there's very few times when someone says, why did you order that test? It's usually, why didn't you order that test? And so it kind of gives you that subtle message, no matter what we're publishing in our journals, that you should be ordering a lot of tests. That's always a good thing. It shows that you're a very good doctor. You thought of a lot of things. And in fact, sometimes I'll have patients who I'll see for a second opinion. And between you and me, their first 
the first person they saw, I think, was not doing the right things. And often it's doing too many things. And they'll say, oh, so-and-so was such a good doctor. And I say, oh, that's great. And how did you know they were a good doctor? Because they did so many tests. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it is certainly in our culture that doing tests is... Um, a lot of what we've been talking about here is the culture change. And I mean, if you talk about doing daily blood and things, that's still going on. Why is it the evidence base isn't there, but these things routinely still happen? Um, and you've been doing less is more since 2010, is that right? Yes. Do you feel like there's been a little bit of a shift yet in that culture that your scepticism is maybe rubbing off on some other people? Thanks. I, and it's certainly not just me <laughs> or, or my journal. I mean, BMJ, I think, has been a leader, and other journals too, and other you know movements that Choosing Wisely that we talked about earlier. There are a lot of forces, but certainly we did have the vision to give voice and space to the idea that more medicine is not always better because we felt at that time that that was not something that we were talking about. There was just this unwritten assumption everywhere that more medicine was always better. You know, if taking one pill a day was good, then taking it twice a day was better. If, you know, 20 milligrams was good, 40 milligrams was going to be better. You know. And so we did really want to challenge that. And it's been, I think, for a lot of reasons where healthcare is going, but it certainly, I do think we're seeing more challenge to that notion that more healthcare is always better for you. Mm. And one of the things that's very interesting about um, certainly the Teachable Moments article type that you publish in Less is More is about um, certainly trying to um, introduce a culture change in the next generation. Can you speak a bit about that, about what you're doing? So I love the Teachable Moments because it is for the trainees and, you know, part of the reason I'm still at the university is because I really love working with them students, particularly our students in residence, but it is the next generation and you realize to really change culture you have to start with education and training and so the Teachable Moments series started because we were getting these stories of too much medicine and things going bad and we thought try to make it constructive and say so what went wrong and what did you learn from it and then how can you share it, which is sort of the point of journals is how, you know, how can we all do better. And so we, and the training has to be the first author, so we were giving them the opportunity and they're not long pieces, so something that hopefully we think is doable. So it's been very gratifying. And again, Deborah um, Grady and Chris Moriarty's really spearheaded that series and I think they're getting great submissions and lots of really good stories, but that it really, there are a lot of spin-offs from that where um, there's conferences on creating value that sort of highlight teachable moments. There's, you know, there's a lot of interest, which is really gratifying to see among the trainees on how they can sort of implement that philosophy and really think carefully about what is good patient care. And teachable moments is an expression of that mm -hmm. along with all the other things that are going on. Mm -hmm. um, journals have been identified as part of the problem of, of diagnosis, of medicalization, generally because of a tendency to publish <clears throat> exciting new things. And, you know, I know 
we talk about this uh, internally about the impact factor and things and, and how much of a problem do you think journals are? Do you think we really need to to take some ownership of that? Well, I mean, certainly I think we should think about what the role is of journals and and how it contributes. I think there is more excitement over positive findings than negative findings in general, and I think we talked earlier about how it's important to also publish negative findings because we have to know what we shouldn't be doing or what doesn't work as well as what does. But certainly people get excited and journals look for you know, studies that will change medicine and that tends to be more things that um, are things to do. But that doesn't mean that we can't have rigorous criteria for it and it doesn't. And I think where journals can be faulted is for taking a finding that is not really important clinically, that's a, a very small absolute benefit. Maybe the relative risk might look good, but you know, overall we're talking you know, one in a thousand people are going to be helped. And then, or maybe it's a very early stage trial, or, it's, it's, or maybe it's not a well done trial, like maybe it wasn't blinded, maybe it didn't have a proper control group. And that's where I think we do really have a role not to get overly excited about data that could be good if it was well done, but it, it's just got serious limitations because it's very hard to take back things once they're mm -hmm. out there, it seems. Well, I guess that Mene Prasada has written that ending medical reversal book, but it's very hard once, particularly in my profession, you know, once you've made an investment in certain equipment, scanners, you know, people have trained, they're not going to want to stop doing something just because we found out it really wasn't as good as we thought based on that very preliminary data that really wasn't high quality. Companies are very clever at, at getting out the message that they want to get out. And that's through, you know, it might be a, a campaign um, of communication, but it can also be through um, designing research and, and things in a way that gets the results that they want. And it's actually quite hard um, for readers or editors or peer reviewers or, have, or whoever to, to identify that that's what's going on. Um, and I've heard it being described as, as almost like an arms race. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was just wondering, you know, we, we're aware of this and we're, we're trying to, I don't know if we've got a handle on how to, to fight that. And I was wondering if, if you've had thoughts about that. Well, we certainly try to be very careful when evaluating a trial, looking at not just the funding source, but how was the data analysis done independently and reliably? You know, how were the investigators? Was it a blinded trial? Was it adjudicated? And that all goes into our decision on whether we're going to publish something. And I know recently we looked at a, it was not a clinical trial, it was a systematic review of some data on some expensive new drugs, I think for rheumatoid arthritis. And in the end, we decided that it, it wasn't a very high quality review, but, and after we'd made our decision, someone pointed out that if we, when we publish, or any journal publishes something like that, because of the way funding, at least in the US, works for uh, insurers and Medicare, if you have an article published in any peer review journal, you can then use that as sort of a off-label indication for insurance coverage so that 
the journals are sort of unwittingly playing into this non-evidence-based, you know, because um, ways for coverage. Because something once it's published, even and we thought this had too much spin in the review, and that's why we didn't take it. But if you then can use the journal articles to then go to insurers and say you have to pay for this drug for this um, disease, even though it's not FDA approved for that, because generally, generally FDA requires clinical trials. So without that data, they could use peer review. And I think in our session earlier, someone mentioned the predatory publishing, but the problem with those kind of low quality or scam journals publishing is that you can then use that, you know, Medicare, for example, is required to pay for all cancer drugs that are um, listed in this compendium, the NCCN compendium, but it's not evidence-based listing. Just and publication so, gets right, you. So publication right. can often mean a lot of so money. It carries a lot of weight. Of a drug yeah. Well, I should just fill in for listeners that um, Rita and I have just been on a panel discussion about the role of journals in preventing overdiagnosis. And we try to invite a lot of um, discussion from the audience. And what was really interesting was that a lot of the, the problems that they felt that where journals contributed to the issue were the problems where journals play into any kind of distortion of science and um, spin and publication. It's similar problems. Um, and they feel quite big to tackle some of those but just to get a sense from you of what do you think the, the sort of priority areas are for well for maybe for JAMA internal medicine or for journals as a whole where do you think we should be focusing our energy on on tackling these problems the ones that we were talking about yeah. over diagnosis yeah well I think you know the things that we're talking about you know careful review of uh, clinical trials or of articles research articles before publication, both not just with methods and results in spin, because we also did talk about that spin, how sometimes you'll see results that are not very impressive, but then the conclusions suggest a lot more there. You know, so I think it's part of the journal's role to be sure that the conclusions fit the, the results data, but also um, to look at methodology and then also in terms of who we invite I think to write commentaries and editorials, it's really important um, to not, I think, invite someone to write an editorial who clearly has a conflict of interest, mm -hmm. whether that's financial or intellectual, but you really want someone who's going to you know, inter help interpret those findings for your readers, mm -hmm. and if they stand to gain or lose by the study, that's probably not a good person. It's very disappointing to me to read an editorial where someone has a clear mm -hmm. conflict of interest, whether it's disclosed or not. It's just, I think, not meant for the editorial pages. As someone who's kind of looked at um, a lot of this literature and been publishing it for a while, um, I was just wondering if there are any gaps that you think um, you've identified, that the areas of knowledge that we haven't yet explored that might be useful. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking we published recently an article about how long should a, a course of antibiotics be? Um, and it's a huge amount of debate, and it's a question that you can think, why why has this not been asked before or or um, or explored before? And I just wondered if you, you off the top of your head, um, had any other ideas about, about areas that we don't well, that was a great article and an interesting topic, but there were so many things like that that we 
you know, often that's one that we treat probably for longer than we need to because maybe the trial was originally done that way, but it's not like all these different durations were chosen. The other thing we found, and particularly when we launched Less is More, the first issue, we looked a lot at proton pump inhibitors because they're so widely used. But we found that they were generally all studied in two-week trials, you know, for heartburn. But they're the kind of drug like a lot. Once they got started, nobody stopped them. And so all these patients ended up on them for years, even though the only the trials were just for two weeks. And so and I don't think proton pump inhibitors are the only drug that yeah. that happens <laughs> for. And, and I think that's why I don't know how it is in Britain, but I imagine it's similar. My older patients, even the healthy ones, are on three, five, seven medications. And the ones that have illnesses are on, I mean, just more medications than I think anyone could realistically take and certainly not take and still have sort of a decent quality of life where you can go out and do things and not be yeah. always worried about when's your next pill. Yeah, I think you're right. The literature on stopping medications and also, yeah, um, duration of treatment and combining, you know, polypharmacy, it's really lacking, I think. Yeah, and I think there was um, a session right at the beginning by... I think it was Barry Kramer said um, there's sort of increasing medicalization, and now we could even say that life is just pre-death. <laughs> well, and, yeah. uh, and it does feel like things are, are going that way. Absolutely. Um, and do you think that culture's got worse? Do you think oh, that yes. that's getting it's going in the wrong direction? I, I do, and I don't think for good reasons. I mean, I, I, taking all these healthy people and now saying they have preclinical disease. I mean, what is preclinical disease? Something you don't feel. If you don't feel it, they're not a patient. But now you've taken all and you've labeled them with pre-diabetes or pre-hypertension, and, and I don't think that's a good thing. It just it labels people and it, it takes healthy people and makes them into patients, which is really a decrement to quality of life. And I think it then opens the door to prescribing medications they don't need because now they've been over-diagnosed with something mm-hmm. they didn't. That's not really a disease. A disease to me should have symptoms. Um, and as a cardiologist, mm-hmm. do you feel like that stands you apart from from your colleagues, or you know, how do you do you feel like that's in your clinical I mean, world? Certainly, there are other cardiologists that feel the way I do. But I would say, like my position um, stands for primary prevention, which is that they're largely the risks outweigh the benefit. Is not the mainstream cardiology. I was just wondering, like, how do, does that change the way you interact with colleagues, do you think? Because you're so well-known for, for doing, for having positions like that. Well, I'm not. <laughs> I, guess, um, I mean, I think my interactions, I don't notice a difference in day-to-day. I do get less invitations from the professional societies um, to participate, mm-hmm. where I used to be much more active in my um, cardiology societies. Mm. And do you think you feel like, I mean, that the statin cycle was something that, you know, was huge for us as well. And I think, I don't know whether we feel emboldened or, or, or you know, damped down because of the, the reaction to that. Um, and I was just wondering, do you feel like you are campaigning more? You've become more sort of strident in your, in your opinions around it. More convinced that I'm right. Yeah, yeah, essentially. 
and, and I should say, actually, I, you know, I do get invitations certainly from cardiology, but it's often for debates, which I'm happy to do. And you know, people like to have debates over those mm -hmm. statins. It's certainly mm -hmm. a, a very popular topic for debate, and and I do get invited, which I appreciate. Um, but I certainly, you know, as I continue to see patients and see patients every week that are really suffering harms of over-treatment and over-diagnosis, it does make me sort of more convinced that this is really an important topic that we need to address, to face, admit, and address because it's really not helping people um, in the ways that I think one might hope that this is helping. I'm sure the intentions are great, you know, for all this early detection, early, but it's not really, there's no evidence that this is helping people and it's definitely making a lot of people suffer. The other big group is sort of the end of life group and why we're you know, doing cancer screening way past the age at which we know that there's any benefit. And, you know, that's another group that really does suffer um, in losing quality of life without having any kind of gain in uh, living longer or feeling better from all of that additional testing diagnoses. I suppose that's the thing is once you have those moral shocks it becomes very difficult to ignore the, the consequences and you sort of see it all around you. Mm. You've been listening to Rita Redberg discuss why less is more. We'll be back with more interviews from the conference over the next few days so keep an ear out for them. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out. <laughs>